Episode 56, The 13 Original Colonies. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, buckle your podcast seatbelts because we're getting to a point where a lot of stuff happens in a really short time. Welcome to the 1700s. And if you ask the question, which century of all the centuries shaped our modern world the most, I think I might have to pick the 1700s. A lot of influential stuff happened in the 1700s. So, as we start this crucial century, I thought I should set the stage by talking about the state of the 13 English colonies in the New World. But before I get to them, I should mention what else is going on in the rest of the New World besides just the English colonies. The English colonies were all on the Atlantic coast, from what is now Maine down to the Florida-Georgia line. But to the west of these colonies, there was a lot of area that was only partly explored by the Europeans. West of the colonies, a great deal of the land had been claimed by France, but they hadn't really sent very many people to settle there. Mostly it was just explorers and fur trappers, except down near the delta of the amazingly huge Mississippi River, where they had set up an outpost named after the French town of Orléans. This was, of course, named La Nouvelle Orléans, which is now New Orleans. The French claimed all the land up and down the Mississippi, but they weren't really settling it. They were settling some places along the north side of the Great Lakes in what is now Quebec, Canada, but these were mostly just forts and outposts, not yet big cities like what was developing all up and down the Atlantic coast in the English colonies. And now down south of Georgia, and west of the Mississippi, west of the French territory, that land was all claimed by Spain. But up in North America, they really hadn't set up too many settlements. Spain was more focused on Central and South America, where some substantial cities were growing. And Portugal was mostly focused on Brazil. The Dutch, who were mostly focused on Africa, had also set up a settlement on an island in the Hudson River, which they had supposedly bought for a handful of beads. Now, not surprisingly, they called this New Amsterdam. They also explored up and down the Hudson River, which is named after an English explorer who was hired by the Dutch named Henry Hudson, who I mentioned way back in episode 41. Now, we'll come back to New Amsterdam in just a minute. So there was still a lot of exploring and settling going on in the New World besides what was going on in the English colonies. For themselves, the English colonies, though, were all on the coast, and most of them felt like their western borders were undefined. That is, each colony sort of thought that all the land inland from them to the west was theirs. Well, except the colonies that were already surrounded, like Rhode Island. But the rest of the colonies felt like they could sort of expand westward almost indefinitely, felt like that land was theirs. We'll come back to this problem episode after next, when we get to the French and Indian War. Because the source of part of this conflict was, of course, the Native American tribes that were already occupying the land to the west. The colonists called these tribes the natives, or savages sometimes, or Indians. 
The name Indian had been around ever since Columbus because he thought he had landed in India. And that's probably the term I'm going to use the most because it was the term that the colonists used, and it was a term that connotated a good bit more respect than savages. Plus, we're coming up to the French and Indian War, so that's what I'm going to use here. The English colonists initially encountered two distinct Indian groups. In the north, there were the woodland tribes, which included the five nations of the Iroquois, the Abenakis, Shawnees, Delawares, Micmacs, Mohicans, Powhatans, Pequots, Narragansetts, Wampanoags, and Massachusetts tribes. Some of these tribes were sedentary hunter-gatherers that lived in villages, and they grew corn and maize, beans and squash. In the south, English settlers came into contact with the Catawbas, Cherokees, Creeks, Natchez, Choctaws, and Chickasaws. These peoples were primarily agriculturalists. At first contact, there was often peaceful trade between the Europeans and the Indian tribes. But then, inevitably, there was conflict as the Europeans took more and more land for agriculture and for settlement. Sometimes this land was taken, sometimes it was bought, but on the frontier, there was almost always some kind of fighting going on. And this will go on for more than 100 years. But the Europeans, as we know, will prevail and drive out the Indian tribes, some of whom will move to reservations, and some of whom, sadly, will go extinct. Okay, so now that we've set the stage, let's look at the 13 English colonies themselves. Going roughly from north to south, the colonies were New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. They all had slightly different histories and characters and had been settled for slightly different reasons. And they each had their own key economic features, but together they had begun to have a substantial amount of intercolony trade. It was much easier to trade with another colony than it was to trade with England, which was months away by sea. But it was true that each colony saw itself as independent from the other colonies, and it was also true that they almost all saw themselves, at least at the beginning of the 1700s, as Englishmen. So let's take a look at some of the interesting things about these 13 colonies and how they came to be founded. So let's start again in the north and we'll work our way south. So up at the very northern tip of the colonies was Massachusetts. Now, you may want to say, hey, isn't New Hampshire north of Massachusetts? Well, the answer nowadays is yes, but back in colonial days, what is now Maine, which is further north, was considered to be part of Massachusetts, so that it was the most northern part of the colonies. Massachusetts was founded in 1620 by the Puritans, also known as the Pilgrims. By 1700, Boston was already a substantial city, one of the most important cities in the colonies. It was an important port for all of New England as the area came to be known. The port was important for fishing, lumber, trade with the other colonies, and trade with England especially. This was in part because it was the closest port to England in terms of the main sailing route from England to the New World. It was also home to one of the oldest universities in the New World, Harvard, which was founded in 1636 in Boston. Harvard, like 
Yale and Princeton, which followed it, and all the earliest universities in the colonies, they were founded as seminaries to train biblical scholars, pastors, and teachers. By the middle of the 1700s, there were several colleges in the colonies. In addition to teaching Protestant theology, they were also very influential in bringing Enlightenment political thinking to the young minds of the colonies, who would go on to become the Founding Fathers. We'll look at this more in the next episode. In addition to Harvard, Boston was important because it was the main city of Massachusetts and would become its capital. The city and the whole colony were strongly influenced by Puritan thinking and culture, and they were especially strong in their sense that they had come to the New World to escape English persecution of their religious views. Ironically, Massachusetts was probably the least tolerant in terms of religion of all of the colonies. It was very much at first trying to be a Puritan society, so it wasn't very tolerant of people who weren't serious Puritans. Part of the reason that Rhode Island, which is next door to Massachusetts, was founded was that it was trying to be a place of religious tolerance, a place for people to go who weren't, well, Puritans. Its culture was more tolerant, but it was still in 1700 very Christian. Rhode Island, for its part, was founded in 1636 by Roger Williams, who had been banished from Plymouth. Williams was a Puritan minister himself, and he was a trained theologian, but he firmly believed in liberty of conscience, and that went against the leaders of Plymouth and the rest of Massachusetts. He taught that the church had no right to tell people what they believed. So the leaders of Plymouth came to have him arrested. Again, this is pretty ironic because the whole reason that everyone was in Plymouth in the first place and that they had taken this dangerous voyage across the ocean and endeavored upon the dangerous work of setting up a new settlement in a new land was because they were escaping religious persecution. So they come after Roger Williams in a case of religious persecution. It's a bit ironic that they persecuted one of their own for basically teaching that people had the right to religious freedom. Anyway, they came to arrest Williams, but he had snuck away during a blizzard, and eventually he made his way to what is now Providence, Rhode Island. There, he very honorably bought a piece of land from the local chief of the Narragansett Indians. The original deed of purchase is still on display in Providence. Williams went on to found a colony based on the principle of liberty of conscience and the full separation of church and state, where neither the church nor the state had the power to legislate what people believed or how they worshipped. Originally, though, there were some limits to this, like you had to belong to a group of at least seven other people, and your beliefs had to be Christian and Protestant. Catholics at the time were banned. So liberty of conscience only went so far even in Rhode Island. Roger Williams also went on to write the first book about the native Indian languages of the area, which became a bestseller back in England. Rhode Island became a haven for people who were looking for true liberty of conscience, and many of the second generation of Puritans, who weren't quite as committed to Puritanism as their elders, ended up moving to Rhode Island. One famous Puritan preacher in Massachusetts, his name was Cotton Mather, called it the cesspit of New England because so many people were cast out by the Puritans and then they ended up moving to Rhode Island. But in the end, Rhode Island itself also became a thriving colony, fueled by sheep and horse farming, apple orchards, and ports that traded in goods from the other colonies. 
Okay, in our movement from north to south, we sort of skipped the other northern colony, which was New Hampshire. Again, it's actually north of modern Massachusetts, but as I said, it was south of the northern part of Massachusetts, which later became Maine. Just go look at it on a map. You'll see what I mean. Anyway, New Hampshire was founded by fishermen in 1623, and it became a separate colony of its own in 1679. It was known, in addition to fishing, as being an important source for timber for shipbuilding, and it was more religiously tolerant than Massachusetts. Now, south of Massachusetts and just west of Rhode Island was Connecticut, which, like Massachusetts, is named after one of the local Indian tribes that lived there. The area of Connecticut already had some Dutch settlers, as the Dutch had started settling along the nearby Hudson River and around what is now New York City and Long Island. In 1633, Thomas Hooker and a group of his followers left Massachusetts, as people seem to do, and settled in what is now New Haven and eventually organized themselves into a separate colony. So that's it for the New England colonies. South of that are the middle colonies, which include New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. As I mentioned, the area that is now New York City was originally settled by the Dutch, who had very imaginatively named it New Amsterdam. Are you seeing a trend here? You either name your city or state New something after the city you came from back in Europe, or you name it after a local Indian tribe, or you name it after the king and queen. In a minute, we'll get back to a notable exception to that trend, though, when we get to Pennsylvania. Anyway, New Amsterdam was founded in 1609 as a Dutch outpost by Henry Hudson. He sailed up the Hudson River and established a trading outpost in what is now Albany. And then in 1611-ish, a guy named Peter Minuit bought an uninhabited island in the Hudson River from the Iroquois Indians. He paid for it with beads and a few other trinkets. This is, of course, now the island of Manhattan, which is some of the most expensive real estate in the world. The Dutch established a fort on Manhattan, building one of the walls of the fort where Wall Street now is. In 1664, the English came with a fleet of ships and seized control of the fort and the area, but they let the Dutch stay and they granted the local Dutch the right to stay and continue to own their own lands in exchange for recognizing English sovereignty. The Dutch accepted the deal and the area continued to have a fairly strong Dutch character for a good while. Lots of the place names in New York, like Brooklyn and Staten Island are Dutch names. But the English renamed the city of New Amsterdam and they called it New York after James, the Duke of York. And I'm glad they called it New York and not New James. The Dutch sort of vaguely had claimed all of the land up and down the Hudson all the way up to the Great Lakes. So right off the bat, New York was one of the bigger colonies. At first, its main exports were timber and fur but pretty quickly it became one of the biggest ports in the colonies and it became a financial hub as well, one of the centers of commerce. It was much less religiously strict than New England, though again, most of the people there were originally Protestant Christians. Next to New York, just to the south, was New Jersey. It had also been Dutch, but it came to become English after the fall of New Amsterdam. It was claimed by two English companies who named it New Jersey after the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. One of the companies sold out to the other company and eventually just became one colony. 
the company sold land at very low prices, and this encouraged a lot of settlement from England, also from Holland and Sweden, as well as a few other European countries. So Jersey, New Jersey, was a bit more ethnically diverse than some of the other English colonies. Now, just west of New Jersey was Pennsylvania. So here we get a bit of a break from naming things after Indian tribes or naming them new so-and-so. Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn, whose father, Admiral Penn, had been part of the English nobility and had lent King Charles II a good deal of money. So the colony was actually named after William Penn's father. Now, William Penn himself was a devout Quaker, which was not what that religious group called itself. They called themselves the Society of Friends. The Society of Friends were not a Puritan group, though they were Protestant, and they did value, like the Puritans did, individual piety and holiness. But they did not believe in the Puritan style of worship, nor in the Puritan style of creating a rigidly religious society. Their church meetings were very, very simple, often without a preacher, sometimes preferring to just have people stand up and take turns telling what God was doing in their lives. And sometimes they just sat in silence, and supposedly they would feel the presence of God so strongly that they would begin to shake, thus the name Quakers. The Friends firmly believed in social justice, and many of them worked in, back in England to reform prisons and to oppose slavery. Many of them were also pacifists, which did become a bit of a problem later in the Revolutionary War. They also believed in liberty of conscience, so Pennsylvania welcomed people of other beliefs, including Catholics. William Penn himself very honestly negotiated with the Lenape Indians and bought land from them for the first settlements. In 1682, he founded the city of Philadelphia. Yay, a city not named New something. Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, which is appropriate for a town founded by the Society of Friends. Philadelphia and the rest of Pennsylvania welcomed in many settlers, including Huguenots, who were French Protestants, Puritans, Mennonites, Baptists, Catholics, Lutherans, people from all over Europe. So Philadelphia was a pretty diverse place by colonial standards. It was also very central in terms of its location in the colonies. So it would become sort of the unofficial capital of the colonies, which is why the first colonial congress will be held there in 1774. By that time, it was also the largest city in the colonies, but I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Now, the southern part of Pennsylvania was three coastal counties that eventually became their own state, Delaware. That area had originally been part of Virginia and was named after one of the Virginia governors, Thomas West, who was also the Baron de la Ware, so hence the name Delaware. Additionally, the land at one point was claimed by Maryland, but eventually William Penn convinced King James to include the land in the colony of Pennsylvania, where it stayed, until the Declaration of Independence, at which time Delaware also declared itself independent from Pennsylvania. To the west of Delaware was the colony of Maryland, named after King Charles II's wife, Henrietta Maria. Again, thankfully, they didn't name it Henrietta Land. It was originally conceived as a refuge for English Catholics, but there were many early settlers who were Protestants. In 1649, Maryland passed the Maryland Toleration Act, which was the first law in the colonies that guaranteed religious freedom, as long as you were 
a Trinitarian Christian, that is. In 1767, there was a dispute between Maryland and Pennsylvania about the boundary between the two colonies, which resulted in them drawing a straight east-west line on the map, which became known as the Mason-Dixon line. This line will come back up in future episodes, I'm pretty sure. Maryland was one of the states that allowed slavery, and like Virginia to the south, Maryland relied on slave labor for the cultivation of tobacco, which was its main cash crop. So although geographically Maryland was sort of one of the middle colonies, economically it was much more aligned with the southern colonies. But when we go south from Maryland and we cross Chesapeake Bay and the Susquehanna River, we are now in Virginia and we are very firmly in the south. Virginia was the oldest and most prosperous of the original colonies. Back in episode 52, we talked about both Roanoke and Jamestown, the first English settlements in the New World. Both were part of the Virginia colony. By 1700, Virginia was very prosperous because they had established a very profitable trade in tobacco, which was relatively easy to grow there, but it did take a lot of labor to harvest it. So Virginia, like all the southern states, was dependent on a growing number of slaves. Virginia was, at least on paper, an Anglican colony, and it had many Anglican churches, which were somewhat controlled by the Church of England, although they had a distinctly colonial character to them. But there were also a good number of non-Anglican churches in Virginia as well. And because it was the wealthiest colony, it was sort of seen as the leader of the colonies, even though Pennsylvania had the biggest city in Philadelphia, and New York was very important, and Boston was the busiest port. But still, Virginia was kind of the leader of the colonies. South of Virginia were the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. In a way, North Carolina was the oldest colony, because Roanoke had been the first settlement, and it's now in North Carolina territory. But at the time it was founded, it was part of Virginia, and plus Roanoke disappeared, so really Jamestown, Virginia was the first permanent settlement. Originally, North and South Carolina were just Carolina, but in 1712, South Carolina split off and became its own colony. Most of the economy of the Carolinas was agriculture, including tobacco, rice, vegetables, and livestock, and eventually cotton. And again, like Virginia, the economy was dependent upon slave labor. In fact, the largest number of slaves in the colonies was in South Carolina. The land of both Carolinas was very good for farming, so they also became fairly wealthy, exporting agricultural products to the other colonies and also back to England. And lastly, in our movement from north to south, we come to Georgia. It was founded in 1733, the last of the colonies to be founded, and it was named after King George II. It was founded by a guy named James Oglethorpe as a place to give debtors and ex-convicts a fresh start. And originally, slavery was banned in Georgia, though that was overturned in 1750. And eventually, like Virginia and the Carolinas, the main part of the economy was agriculture. So now, we ventured through all the 13 colonies. As I said earlier, at the beginning of the 1700s, most of the people there saw themselves as Englishmen or Englishwomen. But that being said, it was already growing apparent 
that the people of the colonies had much more in common with their other neighboring colonies than they did with England itself. And by the middle of the 1700s, there were a great many people in the colonies who had never even been to England. And those people began to see themselves not as Englishmen or women, but more as Virginians or Bostonians or South Carolinians. One of the biggest differences in the culture of the New World was that social class and family did not really matter, at least not as much as they mattered in Europe. Laborers and tradesmen, other people like that who would have lived in relative poverty in Europe, had the opportunity in the colonies to succeed in business and grow wealthy and to buy land, which was plentiful and cheap, and to become part of the local political establishment. Those were things they could not have done back in Europe. The American colonies offered opportunity and the chance to advance one's station in life. This became an important part of the new colonial culture. And for these people who had made themselves something, they had become successful and become part of the political establishment. Well, for these people, the idea of taking orders from someone back in England was much less acceptable. Another important part of colonial life, especially in the South, was slavery. This was much less important in the North, and it was also much less important back in England. But the Southern colonies were very dependent on imported slaves, mostly from Africa, for agricultural labor. And this will be a growing tension in the colonies, and then eventually in the nation, as we shall see in upcoming episodes. One other thing I want to say in summary is that all 13 colonies had been founded in some way as places of religious freedom. The idea of liberty of conscience and the freedom to practice your religion as you saw fit was a big part of the mindset of the colonial people. And also the idea of separation of church and state, except that wasn't quite so important in Massachusetts. It's hard to overstate how important Christianity was to the colonists. So many of them had come to the New World in order to be able to be more serious about how they practiced their faith and to practice it without persecution. It was part of the fabric that knit the colonies together. Protestant Christianity was a key component of the culture of all of the colonies. Additionally, it's important that many of the initial settlers were also very educated men and women, and their education included a lot of enlightenment thinking about individual rights, especially in the northern colonies. And many of these educated people went on to found the universities that became the centers of teaching for the local colonies. All of these things are going to come together in a sort of perfect storm and create a unique environment for the creation of a new nation, founded on the principles of freedom and liberty of conscience, and also informed by the desire to protect the rights of individuals against the tyranny and encroachment of government. We'll see more of this next episode when we look at the American Enlightenment and the Great Awakening.